Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. Welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman. And this evening, I'm joined by Jeff Willits, Chief Operating Officer for Europe at Lenlace. Now, Jeff has had a career seemingly strapped to a rocket that's intertwined several industries, not just property and construction. But unique to this podcast, Jeff's not the man who's been getting buildings designed, built or occupied. He's had a very different role, which I'll definitely let him explain. So Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's good to speak to you. So Jeff, go on, let's get us started. Where does chapter one begin? Well, chapter one for me uh, begins actually um, all the way around the other side of the world. Uh, I'm a New Zealander, which you can probably hear in my uh, in my accent, um, although some people tell me I've, I've lost a bit of that over the years because I've been in the UK now uh, for around 15 years. So um, Not entirely anglicised, but maybe yeah, softened. That's right. Uh, and I, I've, uh, I've naturalised um, uh, in, in, in many senses, um, including, uh, including my support for the uh, England football team, albeit I wouldn't necessarily say the same about some other sports. Uh, so um, <laughs> it's, uh, it is great to speak to you, though. So, so um, uh, as, as I said, my, my career started in New Zealand, and this was back in the very early 2000s, and I came out of university in New Zealand, which is a very similar university system to, to the United Kingdom, and joined a, a graduate program uh, and was, was very lucky, actually, to be selected to join the uh, graduate program for Air New Zealand. And, and actually having, having spent my university career not really knowing what I, not really knowing what I wanted to do and, and having studied um, psychology with a specialism in, in neuropsychology, I um, was looking around the job market at the end of my university career wondering what on earth I was going to do with myself and applied to a bunch of graduate programs and ended up um, and ended up with Air New Zealand and even more luckily as it turns out, I was selected to join the long-term planning and strategy team for, for uh, Air New Zealand, which was actually to this day remains one of the more interesting jobs uh, that I've done, which was very focused on thinking about you know, very long-term trends and thinking about things like which type of aeroplanes you might want to fly to different destinations at different points in the future. And, and so quite, uh, quite interesting stuff and, and very, very analytical uh, which is something that I really uh, actually found myself enjoying, having uh, studied science at university and and come out of that background, but really with no, you know, business training whatsoever. So so I sort of I felt I feel a little bit like I fell into that um, uh, into that role, um, but but I also didn't spend very long there because um, I was young and, and a little bit foolish to be honest with you. And um, after a year, decided that uh, I could be tempted away for what is comparatively a relatively small amount of um, money now uh, to go and join uh, a different type of New Zealand um, uh, corporation, which was uh, Telecom New Zealand. And, and again, for, for listeners, if Air New Zealand is a bit like British Airways, then um, Telecom New Zealand is a bit like British Telecom. So a very, very large New Zealand corporate. And probably one th- sort of thing to note about working in somewhere like New Zealand is you you um, you can cross industries very easily because the market's nowhere near the the depth or level of specialism that you have in in the UK market. If you're somebody who's got skills in planning or long term strategy or something like that, then you can be you're seen as somebody who can move into just about any industry you want. 
and and for me that was sort of the case. And and the reason I say I was I was young and foolish is is not necessarily because it was a bad decision to to change industries, but more just because I, I don't necessarily think I made the decision for on the right basis. And that's it's sort of one of those um, slight sort of um, you know sliding doors moments where you make a decision like that and your career goes in a direction and you often look back and, and think to yourself, well, what if I hadn't made that decision that way? Or how might things have turned out different? But I did, I did take uh, a, a role at Telecom New Zealand um, and, again, as, as in, an, in an analyst-type role working in the, the Telecom New Zealand strategy team and, and, again, focused on very similar sort of things, looking at thinking about the market, thinking about regulation and thinking about technology trends. Uh, and so, again, it was all very interesting. But, but really what, for me, I really got out of that time was that I had the benefit of spending the best part of five years working with the strategic advisors or management consultants from McKinsey and Company. And that was both the, sort of those who'd been hired into work at, at Telecom New Zealand, but also those who were still you know, working for McKinsey as a consulting firm. Um, and I really feel like I learned my core competency in that time. Um, and for me, that core competency really is about, you know, being able to take uh, large swathes of information and analyse it and put meaning to it and then to communicate it to relevant, you know, stakeholders in a way that they can actually consume it and, and make decisions based on that. And so that, for me, just learning that skill set almost, you know, on the side by observing the way some of these um, sort of highly honed consultants would do it was something that was really beneficial. But but I was also sort of in a place where I managed to get quite a bit of exposure to senior audiences through my role very early in my career. And I learned about how, you know, senior executives like to consume information and the level at which they like to um, understand things and, and sort of very quickly managed to to get to a position where I sort of understood how you would communicate to or pitch to a senior audience. Um, and again, I think that's sort of a, a bit the same in that um, that kind of competency area for me was, was a really important thing. Um, and so I found myself sort of in, in this position where I was able to move quite quickly through the business um, at Telecom New Zealand up to a point where I was in my late 20s, um, appointed as uh, head of corporate strategy there. Um, and there was an element of right place, right time about that. But but also I think it was, you know, through having that sort of almost, I guess you could say, sort of accelerated journey with, this, with the support of some of the people I've mentioned. Out of interest, Jeff, you, you mentioned there about sort of the very fast progression mm. and being exposed to sort of senior players. But you said at the start, right, this is a big corporate beast. There's a lot of layers there for you to sort of punctured through in order to get to get through to those guys. What what do you think was your what do you think was your strength in order to be allowed to do that? Yeah, really two things I think. One was as I mentioned, there was an element of right place, right time. So in in that period while I was at Telecom New Zealand, uh, the company went through a a pretty severe form of regulation, uh, not dissimilar to what, um, you know, for those of your listeners who know about it, what, what happened to British Telecom in pro- principally the late 90s or early 2000s. And that required a huge amount of change to the business. But but what was a bit unusual was that nobody really in the business at the time had any experience or, or knowledge of, of that. So it was sort of, 
experience didn't count for anything as a result. Uh, so if you if you were sort of in, as I say, in the right place at the right time, you're actually able to to capitalize. Um, I was able to capitalize on that and and get a lot more exposure through that through the through that process of helping the executive team really understand the implications of the regulatory environment that we were moving into because you know nobody else was really able to tell them any better and it, when it came down to it it was about having the ability to actually put put things into um into a, a language or, a, or a, a, a level if you like that they could actually engage on um, so i think that was one thing i i also benefited from a from a sponsor um who i think um sort of thankfully for me, sort of recognised um, my capabilities and was able to help me get that exposure up into the business. So that was probably the other side. So I got a chance to speak to to one of your colleagues from mm. back, in, back in this time, and I asked them the same question. Uh, and interestingly, you, um, you gave a very similar answer, I think, to a lot of people who I get to interview, whereby right, uh, right place, right time, good bit of luck. Um, but it, what is fascinating is that to people who we have on this pod, you know, who are these real accelerators, do have this habit of sort of describing scenarios that lots of other people would have cowered away from, would have been too great a chance or a risk, or simply wasn't, you know, wasn't their place. Yet people like yourself have this habit of of seizing it, seeing it and seeing and seizing it better than most. And so let's see, I'll, I'll get someone else's perspective on this. So I asked them the same question about what was what was your superpower? During, during this time, and this is what they said. Jeff has a superior strategic brain who has unbelievable logic and analytical skills, but did it all in a quiet, understated way and made it understandable for less strategic people. Basically, he was my secret weapon in driving strategic agendas across the group and had the respect of the executive team at the ripe old age of 23. Now, that's nice, right? Indeed. But it does, you know, it it does suggest that you've got a special skill set here, Jeff. That we're gonna, I think, we're gonna want to uh, dig into a little bit more as we as we go along and see if and see how uh, how useful this skill is and how you hone it over the years. Um, they also, I also asked them about a couple of telling moments, maybe some of the milestones that you were involved in. And do you want to tell us a story about the the, uh, the directories? Oh, the directories, yeah. Um... This is well, and and probably I think in the, in this part of the world would have been known as the yellow pages, and and as, as it was yeah. in in New Zealand at the time. And if you've got young listeners, they won't have a clue what the yellow pages are, which <laughs> probably says all you need to know about the story I'm about to tell you. But um, yeah, so Telecom New Zealand owned the um, the yellow pages business, and the yellow pages was a a big thick book that you would. Um, that you would deliver to every household in the country every every twelve months, and it was basically the phone book. Um, and this is back when people had landlines and didn't have mobile phones and things like that. So it was the book that that was where you you, know, you advertised your business. If you wanted a plumber, you'd open. It was up. everything, right? That's right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was the reason that you know there are triple A plumbers um, and builders and the likes, isn't it? It's it, a, it dictated it, everything. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and the um, you know the yellow pages, um, like like many industries, I think as as everyone would know, sort of died a pretty rapid death with the with the advent of the um, of the internet and and principally Google. However, in the early two thousands, that wasn't something that necessarily was on. 
that many people's radar and, and there was a huge swathe of private equity money swimming around both New Zealand and Australia in, in the early 2000s and looking for you know, businesses that, that, that had potential for you know, cash milking, if you like. So this wasn't sort of as much about turner, turnaround style uh, investment, but it was real sweat the asset sort of style investment. And we, we Telecom New Zealand, through a, through a piece of strategic analysis that, that I was heavily involved with, recognised this level of interest in a, in, a, in a business that we saw falling off the cliff very quickly, but that the wider market hadn't really recognised in a trend sense. And so we, we led a process to, uh, to execute the sale of that, um, of that business, which resulted in um, a business, the business being sold for about 20 times its earnings and within about five years being worth next to nothing. So it was a, it was a wonderful outcome for the, uh, for the business, not so much for the, for the purchaser. But, but, you know, clearly a, a really interesting um, an exercise and something that I was able to be involved in at a very early stage of my career. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? So, you know, to put some numbers against this, you know, this was a sale of uh, $2.3 billion uh, for someone who's, in, who's, as you said, very heavily involved in, in this at such a young age. I think that, that goes to show... Um, one, obviously, a business who is definitely supporting sort of young talent, but also someone who seizes these opportunities uh, as well, ra- rather than simply shies away. So, well, let's let's carry on, Jeff. But we'll keep coming back to this, this, um, uh, and we'll ch- we'll check in to see if this skill of yours pops up again. Okay. So, what's ha- what comes next then after telecoms? Well, ch- chapter two, and um, again, I think. By this point, I'm in my. Um, and Rod was very kind to say 23, but I think I was. By the time I left, uh, by the time I left Telecom New Zealand, I was 28, uh, but still obviously on the um, on the good side of 30. Uh, and um, we're talking 2007, 2008 now. And you know, I was a young guy, and, and I witnessed all of my friends do what just about every sort of New Zealander that sort of had a had a bit of an education and has spent a bit of time working in um, uh, in a corporate role does, which is go and do the um, the New Zealand the New Zealand or Australian um, OE as we call it, which is you go and spend a bit of time working generally in Britain because the visa situation was uh, very supportive of Commonwealth citizens coming here, and that was as I said, you know what uh, what all my friends were doing, and and I was probably the only one of them that had actually sort of risen into a, a, a role within the corporate um, environment in New Zealand that had a level of real seniority to it. Um, but nonetheless, I was still as motivated as them to head over to Europe and have a, have a, have a good time. So, uh, so you definitely had something to lose, right? I, I, I definitely had something to lose. And again, I, I sort of, you know, I don't, I, I don't regret really too many of the decisions that I've made in my career. Um, but I do look back on a number of them and wonder how life might have been different if I'd taken a different path. But I, I naively, again, naively thought, well, you know, we're, we're in this thing called a financial crisis, but in New Zealand we weren't really feeling the impact of, of the GFC or anything like that. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'll, I'll find myself a role, won't, won't be a problem. Um, so I resigned from, from Telecom New Zealand, much to a lot of people's surprise, and um, and headed to the UK, and 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 it was only really when I 
I got here at the back end of 2008 that I realised just um, you know how dire the market situation was, uh, and um, and not only that, I, I I had expectations about the level of seniority of a role I'd be able to come into here and also pay that were really based around sort of where I'd managed to get to in New Zealand, and, and it became pretty apparent that counted for less in this market, in the position that the market was in, which was, as I said, you know, in a, in a pretty bad, um, in a pretty bad way. And, and so really it was, it was a bit of a awakening for me at that point, sort of new market and, and not really understanding uh, the UK market as well. It was, um, it was just a real, a real eye opener. And, and where that led me was, you know, one sort of having to readjust my expectations um, about about the type of role that I could, you know, immediately move into, and, and also about you know the, the the salary expectation that I had. But it also meant that I had the opportunity to actually think about you know how I could take those skills that I had and and think about potentially you know different industries or doing something different because the, the market was very very quiet. I mean there were. There was a point where I sort of, you know, was was not even seeing roles being advertised. Um, it was that it was sort of that shallow. It wasn't even that they were sort of getting the opportunity to apply for roles. It was that that quiet. But but as I said earlier, the the you know the market in in Australasia is is a lot shallower. So it's much easier to you know to to take a, a core skill and apply it in a different industry. You almost have to be able to do that because the market's just not big enough to, to be able to sustain, you know, real specialisation in the corporate world. Whereas if you come to the to, to London or to the UK, you, you you sort of quickly find actually that if you wanted a, you know, somebody who was a strong commercial finance person in real estate, well, you wouldn't hire a strong commercial finance person from telecommunications if you could hire one of the many strong commercial finance people that have experience in real estate. And that's the that's sort of the, the main difference, I think. And and so just getting accustomed to that um, was was something for me. And again, I was I was lucky with with Len Lease. And I know you don't necessarily like the use of the term, but I did have some contacts that helped me find the role. But again, it was, you know, when when getting the interview situation, it was very much about how do I take my core skill, which at the time, as I said, was was really about an, an ability to synthesize information and and turn it into you know meaningful choices that senior executives could actually um, make and, and understand the consequences of them. So, Jeff, given the uh, the challenges around the timing, relocating, the you know the the challenges around sort of you know, uh, UK recruitment likes. What was what would you say was the first real test of those early days at Landlease? From a personal perspective, the, the test was very much about you know myself actually because because I had uh, I took a role as a my first role at Landlease was as a strategy manager in the infrastructure business, and I and I felt I didn't I wouldn't say I felt it was beneath me, but I certainly felt like it was a step down from you know the previous role that I that I'd occupied. Um, and so it was about just coming to terms with that for myself and, and you know, really knuckling down and putting my head down and doing a good job and proving myself. And it probably took me about um, 18 months 
sort of doing that to, to get to a point where I felt like I'd had enough exposure internally. Uh, Lendlease in the UK slash Europe at the time had about 3,000 people uh, across all of the different parts of the uh, business. And so, it, you know, you are sort of trying to fight your way up for a bit of oxygen, get, get in front of the right people um, and show that you're uh, capable. And so that was really that first 18 months for me was just about, again, you know, what's the core skill set? How do I use that to, to show that I'm, that I have a, a level of competency in, in that area? And, and for me that, so that was really that, that, that starting point. And, and luckily again, I, I got that opportunity, you know, doing work within the sort of strategy and new business space of our infrastructure business to, to get some exposure ultimately after about a year to the European chief executive and he recognised that, again, I had that you know, strong skill set on the sort of strategic front and been able to, to, to communicate well, and that was something that he really valued. And, and so I was uh, moved into the position of head of strategy for Europe um, by the end of about two years with, with Lendlease in Europe. And that meant covering a, a variety of different parts of the business. Lendlease is a very broad business for those of you listeners who don't know much about Lendlease. It's a, um, we call ourselves an integrated property and um, real estate group, but basically we uh, have three lines of, of what we do, which is uh, property developments, uh, investments and construction. Uh, and at the time we had businesses sort of spread far and wide uh, across continental Europe plus the UK, albeit a lot of those were pr principally construction focused. And so I, um, you know, I was now in this new role of, of head of strategy for Europe. And one of the first things that I was asked to focus on was, well, actually, do we want to be in a bunch of construction businesses across uh, uh, continental Europe, or actually, is is that you know well aligned with the strategy for the uh, for the group overall? Lendlease overall is headquartered in Australia and was coming under quite a bit of pressure to simplify its business. Um, and show that it was uh, really focusing in on the markets where it could deploy its sort of all of its capabilities, not just construction. Uh, and so uh, there was a big exercise uh, that I led that sort of looked at which markets should we look to retain versus which markets should we look to exit and or which markets should we look to exit and then potentially in the future re-enter. Um, and, and so having run that exercise, the conclusion that was drawn was actually we need to exit a number of these markets uh, and as a reward, I suppose you could say, for my efforts, um, I was asked to then lead the, the process to uh, divest uh, the various businesses uh, that we had across continental Europe and this, is, this was also stretched into the Middle East um, but um, in, in regions um, such as Russia were spread all through Eastern Europe, um, Southern Europe, um, bits and pieces around the Netherlands and Germany, uh, and then in in um, the UAE and Oman and a few others. So, so it was quite a it was quite a far flung portfolio of uh, little construction businesses, and and it wasn't a huge value transaction. It wasn't a you know two billion uh, dollar deal like the Yellow Pages, but it was a really really complicated um, process to effectively clean a lot of these businesses up, get them to a point where they could be transacted and um, and execute a sale. And, and through that time, I learned, you know, again, an awful lot, 
just about different uh, different European markets, but also a lot about M and A and about um, uh, negotiation and about um, due diligence and all of these types of things that are kind of much more um, at the operational end of sort of the corporate strategy world or the corporate finance world. So a, a really big learning curve for me going on that um, on that journey, and I think you know coming to the end of that. Um, that that sort of then stood me in pretty good stead within the business to then look at taking on you know more responsibility from a um, uh, from a transactional perspective, which kind of takes me uh, into into chapter four. Well, don't let me stop you now, Jeff. Can we, uh, let's get into it. Uh, so so chapter four really for me is really where I um, where I've sort of made the the. Um, the bulk of my track record um, career within Lendlease, if you like, um, because this was very much all about building my commercial uh, commercial skills and also, you know, showing that I can deliver on um, on transactional outcomes um, for the business. Uh, and there were a number of big transactions that I led in that time, uh, including the sale of Lendlease's largest asset in in Europe, which was a, um, a stake in the Blue Water Shopping Centre in uh, in Kent, which is a, an asset that, that was developed by Lendlease. One of the first things Lendlease did when it came into the uh, into the UK market in the late 1990s uh, was was to um, develop the Blue Water Shopping Centre, which became the leading out of town shopping centre uh, in the UK, and something that we held a, a big position in, in until the mid 2000s. Um, but it was the right time to recycle that capital where the market was um, extremely strong for retail shopping centres at the time. And, and again, having... When was this, Jeff? What, was, what, what year are we in now? We're in 2014, sorry. Um, uh, so in 2014 was, was a really good time for those looking to divest from, from retail and cap rates sort of got to their sharpest point at that time. Um, Is it public knowledge what it was sold for? Uh, yes, uh, it was sold for six hundred and ninety-six million pounds, uh, and that was for a thirty percent stake in the shopping centre. Um, Any idea what it'd be worth now in a very different retail climate? Uh, it would be worth a fraction of that. I don't know quite how low it got um, through COVID, but certainly it would be worth uh, many multiples less uh, than it was worth at the time. Again, it's probably reported. Lansec was the buyer. Um, so they probably report the value in their in in their accounts. Um, so I could come back to you on that if you want to. Well, not the, um, uh, but we're we're establishing a theme here, aren't we, Jeff? In terms of the uh, uh, some some savvy investment or divestment deals. Mm. But yeah, sorry, I interrupt. Car- please okay. carry on. So uh, at that so the blue water transaction was one of the the first um, sort of major sort of real estate transactions that I led, uh, but that then moved into uh, some sort of structured um, some structured sales of uh, offices that Lendlease was uh, developing. Uh, we have quite a big development pipeline in, in the UK and um, a, a number of very large urban regeneration projects with uh, end values of many billions of pounds. And uh, most of them, you know, we will develop sort of progressively over time in a programmatic way and try and bring capital partners in to help fund the development works as they go. Uh, and 
one of the the sort of very early pieces of structured financing uh, that I led after the Blue Water sale was uh, to bring capital partners into our development in Stratford. Lendlease had developed the Olympic Village uh, for leading up to the Olympic Games, uh, and then we also held um, and still hold uh, a office uh, uh, site over the other side of the um, shopping centre from the from the Athletes Village. Uh, which we've been progressively developing for the last six or seven years. And so the first two the first two office sales were completed in 2015, uh, having secured prelets to a couple of uh, government clients, one being pseudo-government clients, one being uh, TFL and the other one being the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, and so through that time, again, um, I was really building my commercial skill set uh, in terms of sort of structured finance and structured sell downs or what we in what we in Australia we would call it uh, fund through or forward funding type structures mm-hmm. um, and uh, and again also just broadening my exposure to uh, the investment market uh, so the deals we did out there again um, public information uh, were one was with legal in general and the other one was with what was called Deutsche asset management at the time but is now uh, DWS and from there um, really moving into more of a sort of forward-focused capital raising approach. And uh, Lendlease, uh, like a number of uh, developers in the UK, has moved, in, moved into the build-to-rent space. Uh, and so in, in around 2017, I led the establishment of our build-to-rent uh, joint venture with CPPIB, which has now um, developed and completed a little over 700 and 80 apartments uh, for rent and has another 100 or so, 120 or so on the way, I think, uh, in in development. Um, And it's something that we're um, still looking to grow further. But again, it's, um, that was a good example of a a new market and and bringing in a new capital partner to work uh, alongside our development business and to, to help fund our portfolio on a progressive basis in in the same way as as uh, somewhere like uh, Stratford. Well, Jeff, I just wanted to interrupt now because listening to all this and sort of just thinking back into my mind in terms of sort of where you've been, you've, you've started off in a different continent back in airways or aviation, then telecoms. Now, property and construction, you've handled strategy, you've handled M&A, you've handled commercial investment. This, you know, this is obviously someone who is very, very adept at reinventing their, their, their sort of public persona and their, their skills, incredibly so. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question. When presented with a new challenge, how do you determine whether it's a yes or a no from your point of view? Because I think there's there's a there's a lot our audience could learn here from from what what you how you determine whether it's going to be too big a challenge, too risky, or whether it's just the amount of both of those. Yeah, and it's I mean it is somewhat the the sixty four million dollar question, isn't it? But but you know for me, one of my philosophies has always been that the the path forward is not necessarily a straight line. And you do have to be willing to move sometimes horizontally, sometimes downwards, um, and so, or sometimes diagonally upwards in order to move forward. 
and and I always ask myself the question of what what is the next opportunity doing for me from a development perspective, and can I be can I use that score, core competency that I have to do something perhaps a little bit different than perhaps it's that the role has been done historically, and and those are sort of almost my you know, my test cases or my test questions for something. I, I don't normally think about it through the lens of is it too big or is it not too big? Because I've also found that everything almost feels too big when you don't know it very well. And, you know, you look, sometimes you look at, you look at people above you and you think, gosh, how could I ever do what such and such does? I just can't imagine myself in that role. But then actually, once you've been in that role, if you find yourself in that role and you've been in that role for six months, you look back and say, oh, actually, I can imagine it now because I'm, I'm here and I'm doing it. And that's just about, uh, there's an element of just familiarity to that, I think. And, and so for, for me, it's, it's never really been about, is it too big or has it been not too big? It's just been about, is it somehow taking me forward? Uh, and is, is my career going to be in a better or a worse place for the experience that I get? And, and I suppose that sort of does segue into uh, the time I spent in um, working for Lendlease's development arm uh, on the Euston Station redevelopment because it was a very it was a very interesting experience for me having spent you know my career up to that point in corporate roles in transactional roles in very you know at the very pointy end of um, execution uh, sort of most recently uh, I was asked to um, to step in as the commercial director. Lendlease had just secured the the rights to the redevelopment of Euston Station, which was about 2018 that we secured the, the development rights. But the goal to start with was really to work alongside the government partners uh, at Euston to define the design of the master plan for Euston in concert with the design of the station. And so that was a really exciting opportunity for me because there was a there was a real strategic commercial opportunity, but at the same time it was an opportunity to actually work, you know, in the nuts and bolts of the development part of our organisation and really learn about what it's like to work in a um, in a development project. And and I learned a huge amount actually in a number of areas on that, but one of them was just about what it's like to work in a team. Uh, where the team is you know, a collection of different individuals from different specialisms, but that where everyone is pointed in absolutely the same direction. And when you work in a corporate, often your corporate role, you're often almost doing the opposite, where you've got people who are almost pulling in opposite directions and you're trying to pull them back. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're trying to pull them back uh, together when you're working in a in a something like a development project, there's this beautiful alignment, um, which which I really enjoyed. The other thing I got a lot of exposure to was uh, working with government partners and really learning about how to uh, and understanding their drivers and how they make decisions. But but ultimately, it was also you know it also became a very difficult process, and this is well documented publicly that the Houston station works um, have uh, hit some pretty severe budgetary challenges uh, and we went right on the journey with the the Houston station team over that time period uh, as they sort of grappled with design options and um, you know multiple rounds of um, of value engineering and design reviews and option studies and things like that um, and and seeing just seeing that 
you know, process and how difficult that was, was, was something that was quite, quite an eye-opening experience for me. So that brings me, you know, now to, to really where I am today, which is having had that sort of real breadth of different experiences across you know, multiple different parts of Lenlease's business, whether it was, uh, you know, transacting um, deals relating to the sale of construction businesses or working in the investment side or working on the development side, I had the opportunity then to come back into the centre of the business and to take the role as uh, Chief Operating Officer for our European business. And for me, that's really been a, a real opportunity to sort of step up into the into the leadership of the business. You know, having been in, in roles that were very executional or very um, subject matter uh, focused, I, I'm now really enjoying a more generalist leadership role. Uh, and, and with that has come... Uh, some new challenges for me, and one of those is is about becoming, you know, much more of a, a, a leader and an influencer rather than a doer. Uh, I don't have a huge swathe of, of people who report directly to me, but I do find myself with with quite a bit of opportunity to influence the direction of the business, which is, uh, you know, a really exciting position. But also, by the same token, I've, I've only been in this role now for about seven months, and. In that time, we've had to confront some really challenging market conditions, and again, is is probably is is um, in the public domain. Um, we're, we're having to look at some structural options for the business in terms of you know how we reorganise ourselves going forward, uh, and that's been a really you know for somebody who was sort of keen to come into the to the role and really focus on how we grow the business uh, and and how we drive that that growth to have to have now spent the best part of the last few months really working through uh, a reorganisation has, has, has not been the most ideal start, but um, we also have uh, a new European chief executive who was appointed last month. And so over the next six months, I'm really looking forward to helping him settle into his role uh, and helping you know, re-establish um, our strategy and our growth focus in, in the European region. So it's, it's very exciting. So, Jeff, I wanted to bring in a little bit more of our research. And this, and this, I think, will be quite handy to get your opinion on, because I think this is a skill that we could all be better at. So I asked then a recent colleague about what are your unique strengths? And this is what they said. He is brilliant at distilling confusion into coherent strategy. He has a laser vision through the fog. Now, like I said, everyone could be better at doing this. But to anyone right now who is struggling to see their way through or the way out of a problem, whether it's career, whether it's a project, whether it's uh, something sort of wider commercially, what it might well be, what would be your advice for clearly someone who's who's got a real skill in this? Yes, well, <laughs> that's um, and that's obviously a very broad question if you um, if you phrase it that way, but but. I've always found that uh, just trying to write something down on a bit of paper is a good start. To try and think about things as a series of uh, as a series of really clear bullet points. Where am I now? What are my options? And what are the what are the consequences of of each of those options? I, I don't like pros and cons um, because pros and cons potentially carry equal weighting. You've sort of got to really think about more uh, you know more a situation of what are the implications of the different positions I find myself in? But it, it's it's as much about trying to get to a, a you know a, 
an answer that that sort of makes sense and is um, has an element of thoroughness to it um, as it is about how you then um, articulate that. And so for somebody who's wondering about how they make the next step in their career, it's, a, it's slightly different to somebody who's wondering about how they, you know, make a recommendation within a, in a business environment about what the right thing to do is. Um, because you, you, the, the hard thing, I think, is actually how you uh, communicate a recommendation that allows people to really understand that you've considered all the right options and you've come to, you know, your recommendation based on a very full and thorough consideration, but at the same time not overdoing the detail. So really thinking about who your audience is and, and what do they want to consume um, and how do they want to consume it. And I, I remember watching a film many years ago, uh, I think it was called Margin Call, and you know, it was all about sort of a dramatisation of the financial crisis. And and at some point towards the end of the film when, uh, excuse my French, but the shit's really hitting the fan for this imaginary investment bank, the um, the chairman flies in on a helicopter and he lands on the roof and he comes out and he says to this analyst who's about to tell him that the world is falling, he says, now I want you to talk to me as if I'm a five-year-old. Uh, and I always thought that was quite funny because uh, it's, not, it's not because the, the guy was you know, incapable of understanding uh, the detail. He just didn't want to because that's, that's not what, by the time you're the chairman of a giant investment bank, you don't want to have to think through you know, all of the detail around something. You just want to be able to understand a condensed amount of, uh, amount of information and, um, and have confidence that the right process has been gone through to get to the recommendation. All right, then. Now I'm going to turn over to to one of our listeners who sent me in a, a question of their own. So uh, I'll play this back to you now, and then you'll have to tell me sort of how, how you'd answer this as well. Hi, I'm Hebe. I've got a couple of questions. Um, my first one is, would you recommend your career path to yourself um, if you're right at the start of your career again? So what do you make of Hebe's question, Jeff? Yeah, well, th- thanks for the question. Uh Look, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of um, looking backwards with too much introspection, but, I mean, to, to answer your question, would I recommend my career? Yes, I would. Uh, but, you know, there have been, as I, I think I've alluded to, three or four times where my career could have taken a different path because of the choices I made. Um, but, but I don't really think you can dwell too much on that. Um, and I think uh, I'm sort of a, a believer in the, the sort of concept of the butterfly effect uh, which is that, you know, even a small action can set off a chain reaction of all sorts of other different unintended consequences. So you don't really know how things would have turned out if you'd done anything different. You can only look back and, and look at the quality of the decisions you've made. And, and like I said, I think there have probably been some times where the quality of the decision that I made wasn't great, but um, the outcome turned out to be okay. Of course, you don't know how it might have been otherwise, but um, I think that's for me really the question I ask myself is, uh, is, you know, have I made the most of um, the decisions that I have made rather than dwell too much on, you know, what else I could have done? Well, Jeff, thank you very much for sharing this story. Thank you for answering my questions, our audience's questions as well, and really giving up your time to to really help an awful lot of people uh, crack what is often some of the, the hardest, I think, sort of skills regarding how to, how to understand or see through that fog as well. So I really appreciate it, Jeff. It's been a pleasure.